No, let's go. So. Hello and welcome oh. to episode 64. <laughs> of world famous Tretzlu Plodliang. I'm, um, I'm the Alabama Leprechaun <laughs> and I podcast with... Hmm. <laughs> no preparation. Skunk ape. <laughs> Skunk ape. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So, thanks to our new listeners joining us for the first time and taking us over the five million listener mark. Doing pretty well there. Um, so, mostly thanks to the massive uptake over at uh, Patreon, where we do now have a, a podcasts Patreon project. <clears throat> um, we've got some interesting stuff to talk about this episode. I yeah. guess I'm sure we'll find something <laughs> to cover. So, uh, uh, okay, so yeah. we start with okay. So you got any fu? Fu, John. Fu, Darren. For new listeners, that stands for follow up, because uh, in the interest of um, transparency and uh, correcting the mistakes of the past, we do like to uh, follow up on the mistakes we that John makes. John makes a list of mistakes every episode, mm. and previous episode episode 63 in the discussion of probsidian tusks sagath not sagatherium sagatherium's a hyrax you meant phosphotherium john uh in discussing Sorry. uh yeah in talking about um black panther mm-hmm. and her uh-huh. okay clearly darren is obsessed with new york darren sees anything to do with an urban environment in the United States and he thinks it's New York. And the examples in both cases were actually pertaining to Los Angeles, that other city in the United States of America. So <laughs> I think... So did you say they took play, part, place in New York? I don't understand. Yeah, I, apparently. That's what, that's what Kesey tells me. Oh, okay. There you go. But you know what they say about Mike Kesey? <clears throat> you know, I've forgotten what we say about Mike Kesey. Something to do with take that easy. Take that easy. Take that. Yeah. Uh, seriously, thanks, uh, T. Michael Keezy. Um Chameleon, the glow bones research, which we've discussed uh, one or possibly two occasions. Mark Shirts and colleagues. And do you remember <laughs> we had a rather conf- you uh, had a, conf- a rather con- you had a confused. <laughs> I got it right. I am Smap. <laughs> <laughs> We had a rather confused and mangled discussion about whether the how the UV light emitted by the bones was visible to the humans, and uh, yes, you were correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. That um, yes, it is emitted uh, within the visible spectrum and not as UV itself. So yeah, you were right on that. Well done. Um, I think I got uh, a mangled Marjorie Coombs's name. I invented some new name. Uh-huh. Mar- Marjorie Agut or something I can't remember now uh, Sharon Hill's Sharon Hill's um, podcast is called 15 Credibility Streets I forgot that my apologies uh. and there's believe it or not there's about 15 things that I checked and read before recording this and I meant to check 
Okay, I'm a complete idiot because 15 Credibility Street is an obvious reference to something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> You're a complete idiot as well. Okay. It's well, not... Um, uh, we should just gloss over that. Fifth, no, no, don't know it. Might be an American reference that we don't get very well. No, no. Sharon told me specifically that it's not where it's because the only thing I can think of it's not. Oh, it's not Baker Street, which is where Sherlock Holmes lives. We're just too stupid. <clears throat> mm-hmm. No, okay, drawing a blank on that one. In the discussion of that giant Mauritian super rail. Um, Leguatia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I devoted like ten minutes of the discussion to say, "Oh, I was really surprised. No one else had covered it. There's no 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 other bloggers have written about it." Well, <laughs> there's this thing called Google on the internet, and you, you put names in and stuff, and it finds websites for you. And really? I did that, and um, <laughs> it turns out, of course, Carl Schuker had, of course, written a long article, basically covering the whole thing. So I wasted my time there. I shouldn't even have published it because he'd already done it all. <laughs> Carl Schuker. Um I know I know Carl Schuker quite quite well. We have good friends. Um so that's the end of FU. Good. Now uh us now in our new um probably uh fortnightly style schedule that we're trying to stick to, we're not gonna cover the same th- there's 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 interesting stuff I want to talk about but but um we'll skip straight to what's new at Tetsu, which is what's on the blog, which is the uh, the place that you look at before you listen to the podcast, of course. And I, yeah, I finally got round to reading, no, reviewing God's Word or Human Reason. Mm-hmm. So, um, this uh, very nicely done book, which I probably did actually talk about when I first received a copy uh, a couple of years back. It's a bit embarrassing. It takes me like. It takes me literally years to get around to reviewing a book, and that isn't because I'm lazy. It's because that's how long it takes. Often, uh, often I never even have time to finish reading it. Have you ever written a book review? No. No. Well, I do it a lot, and um, it just takes me forever. Yeah. See, so the problem so is that I have to read books to do book reviews. Yeah. Well, I read. I'm reading constantly, often several books at once, but it takes me forever to finish reading a book because mm. it's just like, you know, the odd 20 minutes of reading here and there. Um, it's a real problem when you review a book for a technical journal and they expect you seriously to turn around your review within, I am not joking here, within one month. It's like, are you serious? It's like, you can't, there is no person in employment in the world, let alone an ac- in academic and what the hell do I do? You know, the sort of authoring consultancy stuff I do. Like, there's no way a person can read a book in a month, let alone read it and review it and write a review that's actually good and, a, you know, a couple of thousand words long. It's a, so who, who, who said that famous thing? I never read a book before reviewing it. It's prejudices one. So I, was, <laughs> and I, I that, yeah, that, that's like the mentality. So you pick up your book. It looks all right. It's got a pretty cover, and the words are mm, yeah. So yep. So on the back of that, which is why you do get. I'm going off at a tangent. You do get people who review books regularly and clearly just haven't haven't read it. For example, yeah. look, okay, random, random example. I've got this book to hand. Living, okay, Living dinosaurs. The evolutionary history of modern birds, edited by Gareth Dyke and Gary Kaiser. It's not new. 
is published in uh, 2011. And there's a review of this book online written by a famous science blogger. I'm not going to mention his name. And he wrote a review of a couple of hundred words saying, oh, of course, you know, birds are dinosaurs, birds are dinosaurs, feathered velociraptor, birds are dinosaurs. That's what this book is about, birds are dinosaurs. And I said in the comment section, I said, did you read the book? <laughs> because there's like one chapter in it at the start, which is about the theropod setting of the origin of birds. And the entire rest of the book is about Cenozoic birds. It's very much about birds after the age of dinosaurs. So it would be utterly wrong to write a book, uh, write a review that's... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, tangent. Yeah. So good meta meta uh, view of reviewing there. Now, what about the actual book? What? Oh, oh, okay. oh um, <laughs> God's well, word on human reason. <laughs> well, I direct people to the blog. Go and read the blog. Go and read the Tetrapod Zoology blog because, okay, so. Um, God's Word or Human uh, uh, Reason by uh, Jonathan Kane, uh, Emily Willoughby, and Keezy, T. Michael Keezy, and two other authors as well. Um, after going to the Answers in Genesis um, Creation Museum in Kentucky, Jonathan Kane and colleagues... Um, uh, answers in Genesis. Uh, we've we've covered creationism a couple of times on the podcast before, haven't we? Um, Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis is a, is basically not only promoting literal uh, young Earth creationism, but also tells religious Christian people that this is the interpretation of the origin story that you need to accept. And if you don't accept it, you're not like a proper Christian. And uh, the take of this book is mostly saying to Christians that you can be a Christian, you can be religious as much as you like, but you don't have to, you, uh, you don't have to, and indeed you should not follow and adopt the answers in Genesis flavor of origins as in origin of the universe origins of the planet origins of life origins mm -hmm. of humanity etc so different chapters basically tackle the key proposals the, the key arguments of the answers in genesis creation museum so there's a section on flood geology a section on uh, geological uh, radiometric dating a section on human origins uh, a section on dinosaurs and birds and so on and so forth and um it's a very well designed book, and um, and it and it tackles, like I say, it t it tackles these things within the context of saying that it's teaching religious people and Christians. You know, it was written for for practicing believing Christians. It's saying, you know, believe if we if we accept, and for those of you who don't know. Uh, John and I aren't practicing Christians <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, you, how do you describe yourself? Me you religious? Yeah, you? No, I'll, I'll wear atheist. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm atheist. Um, but um, but it's but it's it's uh, yeah. I, I tried I tried to justify in the Tetrapod Zoology article as saying that um, that the, the 
the, the contention from Ken Ham that you've got to take a literal interpretation of the Bible over the word of science, which which he and his buddies dismiss as pa, that's just like silly silly humans coming up with stuff more recently, whereas we've got the Bible, which is the actual word of God. It's like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. The the Bible is um established as having contradictions in it and things that are absolutely not true. And it doesn't actually really say anything that's um totally, you know, against what we what we understand about evolution, the origin of the universe, etc. Although it probably does. That's a that's a argument that you, you just but yeah it says bits that contradict other bits so the two stories of creation aren't exactly compatible so there we go yeah I mean yeah and but Ken Ham's particular interpretation is because they're so dogmatic about it is so well it's 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 a bit silly really isn't it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And within the like the if you look at the comments on the article, you've got this thing where uh a lot of a lot of people who are of an atheistic bent or who are atheists, they say, Well, you know, just stop pandering to religious people and just be honest about what we actually think about the universe and stuff. And um I think that yeah, I I I I do believe that, you know, not believe I shouldn't use that word in this context. Um I am quite swayed by the evidence that if you look at religious texts and religions themselves, you know, an, uh, a, a properly deep scientific uh, stance, they they don't stand up as pieces of like robust. Um, uh, I, I can't I can't explain what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is it's really obvious. That, for example, the Bible is cobbled together from numerous other myths and numerous other stories, as is as in, indeed is Christianity is itself. Uh, but I don't think you should just blunder in and say straight away to religious people, the sort of people that go to a creation museum. You can't just go in and start from the you know first principles. Say no. God doesn't exist. The Bible's <laughs> irrelevant. You can't do that. You have to say that. Okay, you believe what you like. You're allowed to believe that stuff if you want. Understand that. You know, you're not just going to sever that immediately. But you don't have to believe that Tyrannosaurus was eating watermelons in the Garden of Eden six thousand years ago. Um, again, that specific brand of. Uh, origin stories promoted by Ken, Ken Ham and buddies. Yeah, and I think I've said this to you before, but everyone believes in little fictions to get them through life. Atheists Did choose I? different ones, yes. Yeah, that's what they say. I don't know if it's true or not. It is. I think we've even discussed this on the podcast before. Yeah, we, yeah, we have. But then, and and, and I'm very much, I am very much aware of this. This comes up all the time. Um um, Penn and Teller used to do this uh, whole skit about um, how everybody's got—I forget what they, I forget the term they use for it—the fact that everyone's got some irrational and untested thing that they adhere to. And when you think about it, it's like I'm not. Yeah, I can name it again. This is a, We've had this conversation before. You're forgetting free will. No, because I don't. Okay. This isn't about me, but let's say it is. Okay, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't believe free will, because now being familiar with the argument about it and the the evidence there is that we don't have free will. I mean, as you know, people have spent literally years arguing over this. 
are you are you not more than happy to accept that we don't have free will and that this whole debate about what consciousness is and the fact that things are put in place before we're consciously aware of them and therefore we don't have free will you're aware of that debate yeah so well therefore you can't say that you just blindly accept it but you still everyone still acts like it exists well, doesn't mean Okay. Yeah, you're believing yeah. it on some level, and I think in a day-to-day level, you always believe it. It's how it, how your actions are defined. I think it's sort of part of how we think about stuff. It's necessary to work. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, exactly. I think, well, you've just hit the nail on the head. I think it could be like a, a functionally practical thing to just like go with it for now. Like, I'm not going to, if I'm having a conversation with someone, I say, would you make a cup of tea? I don't say can you automatically put in process the things that will make you think you're making a cup of tea, please? <laughs> if you get what I mean. Okay, we're again spinning off at a tangent here. I don't, I don't um, think I don't think that is a particular particularly crazy tangent to take. In that, okay, so some people believe religious stuff uh, about God and things, and we're not really clear on what level things believe it, what they actually believe. It's physically the case and that sort of stuff. It's all very messy with lots and lots of people. And therefore, to take this hardline atheist angle with people who believe, who, who are, you know, believe in Christians, I just think, uh, you know, there's so many beliefs that people can have that basically have no effect on how they see evolution or science, then just, you know, whatever. Yeah, but conversely, there are beliefs that people hold that do have an impact on science. Indeed. And if if you are concerned about this specifically in the United States, I mean, it's, it's less of a problem in other countries, including here in the UK. But countries like the, the, the US, they obviously do have a significant problem with evangelical Christianity. And uh, at least based on the um, uh, utterances of... Uh, like the current vice president, for example, they there is you know there is there is an impact it can have on public policy education. Oh yeah, indeed. I don't mean to argue against that. I mean that's I'm sort yeah. of arguing that yeah. this book's um, take, as you say. I mean I haven't read it, but you have. Is it's, it's not to take those yeah. beliefs and say your God doesn't exist, me me. Exactly, exactly. Which is yeah. which is yeah. To make it clear, that's not what the book does. So to bring it to bring it back to the book, I mean, although as we say, it's it's written from that perspective of uh, talking to religious people, even if you're not religious or interested in the discussion there, um, it's it's worth it's worth getting getting if you're interested in science education, if you're interested in discussions about the age of the Earth, geological dating, radiometric dating. Um, uh, Kesey's chapter on uh, hominid evolution, you know, mostly on hominins, but uh, hominids in general is really nice, uh, really strong, mm. and the uh, stuff on birds and dinosaurs is really good. Loads of Emily Willoughby illustrations. So, do get the book if you're interested in that sort of thing. And it's um, apparently Amazon was saying it was out of, out of stock, but you can. There's links in my article where you can um, buy it directly from. Um, Emily Willoughby, one of the uh, authors. So, um, God's Word or Human Reason. The reason it has that title, by the way, as I explained in the article, is I might be repeating myself. Stop me if I am. Nope. The Creation, okay, the Creation Museum says that Human Reason claims that life originated billions and billions of years ago. And these weird and, you know, almost. Unex- unimaginable events in the cosmos 
being. Okay, so that's the human reason side. But whereas God's word says that, no, it all started on Sunday afternoon, 6,000 years ago, around 4.30. And <laughs> so this, the, the idea there, they're supposedly say that human reason is the silly one and God's word is the one we should trust. Yeah. And that's why the book is called God's word or human reason. Uh, so, <clears throat> okay. Uh, and also new at Tetsu is a very brief article on pigeons and doves, which uh, I had to publish an article on the last day of the month to fill my quota. And I, so I just quickly cobbled together some text on that. And there you go. <laughs> pigeons and doves, they're great. Okay, good. Right, so that that's what's new at Tetsu. We're going to go on to uh, news for the world of news. Yeah, news. Oh, from the insert... Yeah. Insert jingle here. News for the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. <clears throat> okay. Good job. Do you have any news from the world of news? Nope. Okay. Well, we'll start with. I'm not going to do them in order. We'll start with um, the whale thing. So in 2007, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the first author, Bianucci, I think. Bianucci et al. published a paper um, where they reported the. Okay, sorry, step back a little bit. Where do you, you go if you want to find fossils? You go to deserts, you go to eroding cliffs. You go to coastlines, quarries, etc. I go to museums. They've got heaps of fossils, Derek. I don't know whether you know this, but like, did you just I, go there and they're just all over the place. Did I say if you want to find new fossils? Okay, if you want to find new fossils, you can... No, Darren, Darren, fossils are old, man. <laughs> it's like kind of the point, isn't okay. it? Okay, you, you make a compelling argument. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll try and rephrase that. So, right, <laughs> God's sake. Okay, um... It's now fairly well known that in some parts of the world, there's fossils eroding out and being exposed at these places on the land. But if you go swimming under the water mm. and look at the sea land, as it's called, the land <laughs> under land. the sea. <laughs> yeah. 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 People say that the earth is mostly covered by water, but what about all that land under the sea? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a fair point. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's land. Um, <laughs> um, the, the submerged surface there's rocks and stuff there as well the sediments submerged right mm -hmm. obviously complex things going on like different things happening all over different parts of the world but there are places where there are exposed fossils literally kicking around on the seafloor and if you go diving or send down you know trawling devices or whatever you can find fossils the North Sea it's well known the North Sea um, there's loads of Pleistocene you know mammoths and all other manner of animals that were living in that region dog land exactly all that sort of stuff. well since 2007 be tell they uh, published a paper on an assemblage of uh, beaked whale fossil beaked whales that had been trawled from the seafloor off the coast of south africa i was like wow this is amazing they described eight new genera and 10 new species in just off the coast of South Africa. These, they're all skull fragments, and beaked whales are a group with a, you know, particularly dense-boned skulls in any case. Uh, some of them have the densest boned 
Um, though the densest bones of any animals, the, mm-hmm. the Mesopodon densirostris, Blanville's beak 12, the rostrum is probably denser than ivory, which is what otherwise said to be the densest tissue invertebrates. And um, so these things have been rolling around on the seafloor for millions of years. <clears throat> So that's the that's the background to this. Well, there's a new paper that basically does the same thing, but instead of reporting it off the coast of of um, South Africa, this paper is reporting an assemblage of B12 fossils from the seafloor of the Southern Ocean, and in particular the section of the Southern Ocean that's south of the Indian Ocean. So it's called the Indian sector of the Southern Ocean. So uh, off Kerguelen Island and Crozet Island. And uh, they've done the same thing. So long line fishing activities. So fishers that are pulling stuff off the seafloor between 500 to 2,000 metres down, they are, in quotes, capturing the the fossils of um, loads of beaked whales. And uh, they've got, Excuse me, in this assemblage just published by Olivier Lambert, Christian de Mison, and colleagues. Uh, this paper is published in Geodiversitas and it's open access. Uh, the paper is titled Neogene and Quaternary Fossil Remains of Beaked Wells, Cetaceodontocetazifidae, from Deep Sea Sediments off Crozet and Kerguelen Island's Southern Ocean. So that's in Geodiversitas. Uh, they report more than eight species in at least seven genera. Many of the taxa. Uh, the species as well as the genera are actually the same as published uh, mm-hmm. earlier in that that, pa- that other paper that I just mentioned by Bianucci et al. Um, so yeah, so I, I won't go into won't all the details. We're talking about um, we're talking about like a, a totally extinct beaked whales, species of African acetus, coicocetus, as well as living ones like this Mesopodon and Xiphius in the assemblage. Some of them are Miocene, so some of them are like, you know, some like 20 million years old, hmm. and some of them are Pleistocene, as in like sort of 10,000 years old-ish. Hmm. And the those younger ones have the potential to tell us some interesting things about the diversity of beaked whales that we should expect in those regions today. Because, of course, because of course, as everybody who knows anything about whales knows, um, the diversity and distribution of living living beaked whales is you know something we're still getting a handle on and this surprises every now and again from that you know find a new species in the south atlantic or whatever now how much do you know about plate tectonics darren well you know a bit yeah so like my very skim reading of the whole subject was that a lot of the sea floor is pretty new because it's yeah. um continually subducting and the tr- the um, what's it called? The ridges. The yeah, the mid-ocean ridges. Mid-ocean ridges are pushing it out, and it's continually subducting. Mm. Um, but I ha- I have absolutely no idea how long that takes to get from the mid-Atlantic to going under, say, mm. the um, west coast of Africa. Mm. How long does that take? Because it um, uh, twenty million years. It sounds like a long time, right? That you'll find yeah. things like this. But are they found on the continental shelf? But it sounds like not, because they're found quite deep. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, I, I can only give some arm wavy answers on this without uh, like checking up on it properly. But my thinking is that those two regions where they've got these fossils from are not particularly active. So they are not adjacent to active subduction zones. 
So uh, you're right. I think seafloor in on average is I think most areas of geologically active seafloor are like less than 50 million years old mm. i think the average age of the rocks is uh, i want to say 2 million years but i think that's i think that's way too young but i think it's on the order of like 20 million years the the average age of the seafloor is not very old because as you say there's active uh, new magma appearing at the mid-ocean ridges in the atlantic and pacific and then it's moving out to the east and west uh seafloor spreading happening as well mm. um which is why so, it's not good for finding old things, obviously. But, you know, 20 yeah. million years seems decent. But then, of course, it's also much more difficult to explore. Yeah, yeah. So... <clears throat> That's pretty cool. The, yeah. I, I mean, uh, part, part, of the, part of the story here, as, as I've said, is that the skulls of this particular group of animals are particularly resistant and robust and can roll around for a long time. Mm. Whereas you imagine you wouldn't get the same for, say you know, mesozoic plesiosaurs, their 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 skulls would mostly like break to bit break to pieces after, you know, a couple of centuries of rolling around, you'd only get fragments, unidentifiable fragments. They'd have to be covered in silt and then re exposed, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. So we could go off at a tangent there, but we'll avoid that. So um and that segs into I mentioned plesiosaurs, that segs uh, fairly nicely into the second thing I want to talk about real briefly, which is this new paper by um, my colleague um, Valentin Fisher and Associates, The Evolutionary History of Polycotylid Plesiosaurians. So way, way back, early episode of the podcasts, we did talk about um, plesiosaur phylogeny and diversity, and it was, Jesus God, it was a mess. <laughs> But um, <laughs> this, this yeah, well done, well done for setting that one up, John. This study, which is again open access, it's in uh, Royal Society Open Science, Fisher et al. Uh, it, it's it's basically like a, an up to date review of polycotylid phylogeny and diversity which is a thing that's been tackled a few times in recent years, but this is like a new take on it based on reinterpretation of a Moroccan um, animal called the Lilua, which was named by Natalie Bardet and colleagues in 2003. It's a very long-snouted um, polycotylid. Polycotylids are an entirely Cretaceous group of plesiosaurs that are part of this weird clade called Xenopsaria, which also includes the super long-necked elasmosaurs and at least, you know, quite a few polycotylids are pliosauromorph. They're of the relatively big-headed, relatively short-necked kind of plesiosaur body shape. But quite a few studies don't find polycotylids to group with other pliosauromorphs. So they're part of a, a clade that also includes long-necked animals. And studies have differed as to whether polycotylids are close to elasmosaurs or cryptoclydids. There are still a couple of researchers who do who do still find polycotylids to group with other pliosauromorphs, like you know, pliosaurids proper. But um, I think the evidence is pretty good that that's not that's not right. They're close to the long-necked ones. And again, I'm just wary about talking about this for 10 minutes and it being really in-depth. So all I'm going to say is what they basically find is that um, polycotylids include pliosauromorph relatively short-necked taxa, but the group also includes a couple of long-necked ones. And uh, this study, they find evidence for 
a clade of fairly long-lived polycotylids that they call occultonectia, the occultonectians, as in the the occult the occult refers to things that are like um hidden or mysterious doesn't it rather than anything specifically to do with devil worship i should think so yeah yeah i've forgotten they do provide the etymology and i've flipping forgotten it but um they find there's this group of pliosaur like particularly pliosaur like polycotylids that includes plesiopleurodon which was initially described as a um, pliosaurid and Sulcosuchus, which is a small, uh, I think it's a South American Caribbean form, I've forgotten now. Cultonectians are these long lived things, and then there's this polycotylene clade, which is your sort of bog standard, typical polycotylids like Delicorinchops and Trinacromerum. Um, and they find Mauriciosaurus and Thililua to be early diverging members or relatives of that more samey polycotylene clade. And Mauriciosaurus is everyone's favourite plesiosaur because it's the one that we covered it a few episodes back. It's the the one from Mexico with the body outline mm. and all the scales preserved, right? So Mauriciosaurus, incredible... Um, uh, amount of information on plesiosaur life appearance. Mauriciosaurus is a near relative of the same polycotylene clade within polycotylids. And if you combine everything I've just said, what I've said about there's this occultonectian clade that's very pliosaurish polycotylids, then there's weird ass long neck ones like Thililua. Then there's animals like Mauriciosaurus. Then there's the same polycotylians. If you add all that together and look at their geological ranges, within this group you have this pattern of a fair amount of um, sort of diversification in body shape and experimentation that's happening in the earlier part of their geological range, as in like we're talking about sort of the late early and middle Cretaceous. So late early Cretaceous and middle Cretaceous, that's when all the diversity is. And then the diversity sort of mostly diversity and disparity sort of like drops off. And these more interesting ones go extinct. And then for the rest of the Cretaceous, you're left with samey boring ones. So, you know, there's these studies where people have identified in many clades, there's early stages of experimentation and weirdness. And maybe that works for like a while. Mm-hmm. In reality, a crazy long time, you know, five, ten million years is a ridiculous long time. But then they die out and then you're left with the samey things that that hang around for like, you know, 30, 40, 50 million years. And that seems to be the pattern here. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's so this has we already know. Oh, my God, how complicated is the history of plesiosaurs? It's It's really complicated. There's so many lineages doing so many different things. And this is just one study on one of those lineages. This is just on polycotylids. And there's all of that stuff going on. I think so, what makes them particularly confusing is there's a lot, there seems to be a lot of convergence going on, right? Yeah. It's like birds. So... <laughs> Like yeah. birds. Well, that you get convergence well, and things belong to unexpected groups. And I'm with you. Yeah, we yeah. touched on this last time yeah. when we were talking about the Kendites, the alleged diving goose that might actually not be a sea duck even, but be a dabbling duck. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, they do say that penguin uh, no, plesiosaurs are just basically double penguins with a neck stuck on the front. So, uh, <clears throat> um, I work on plesiosaurs occasionally, together with Luke Musket and colleagues. We're still doing the stuff on uh, plesiosaur uh, biomechanics of swimming and stuff, which is exciting research. Mm. Um, okay, and the other thing, now we always say that we don't want to talk about dinosaurs too much because, oh my God. Or you said Otherwise it. it well, well, don't you agree with me? Otherwise it would just be the dinosaur podcast. <laughs> what the people want darren why why is there not a dinosaur podcast or is there and we just don't listen to it yeah there might be oh there are dinosaur podcasts there's one called i know dino um but i don't know whether there's like an in-depth sciencey type dinosaur podcast i don't know maybe there is we should shut up maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> or no hold on no sorry you mean but of course we already have got that quarter of the market covered right yeah. <laughs> so we talk about dinosaurs loads we're dinosaur experts is so what's the best dinosaur? <coughs> um <laughs> Giraffe Titan. No, you're wrong. It's Take a drink, drinking game. You can't hear the dog, can you? No. Good. Um, Jesus Christ, you won't shut up. Um Chilisaurus. The best dinosaur. Wow. <laughs> Bold Chilis- Chilisaurus published in 2004 and it's a weirdly kind of nondescript bipedal mid-sized animal with a mid-length neck and a nondescript skull weird um hands uh, is it has it got two fingers i think it's very odd and it looks like it was a um uh sort of generalist omnivore it was initially published so hold on, it was discovered in 2004, but it wasn't published until 2015, make that clear. It was first published by Fernando Novas and colleagues as a theropod, probably as a tetaneurin theropod, so as a member of the same group that includes allosaurs and tyrannosaurs and birds and whatnot. Um, they published, Novas et al. came up with like a few different suggested identifications, suggested it was sort of like a megalosaur-grade tetaneurin, mm-hmm. but it's also very kind of bird line in some aspects of its anatomy. So even within theropods, there's these disputes about where it could go. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and of course we come to the whole Ornithoskeleda situation, which we've discussed at length here before. Well, within the context of Ornithoskeleda, um, Matthew Barron and colleagues specifically looked at Chilisaurus and... They said this animal, identified as a theropod, is generic enough that it also looks a bit Ornithischian-like. So those of you that don't know dinosaurs will remember that there's theropods, that's the predatory dinosaurs and birds, sauropodomorphs, that's the group that includes the giant long-necked sauropods, and the Ornithischians, that's the mostly plant-eating armoured dinosaurs and horned dinosaurs and iguanodon, duckbills, etc. And Baron himself said that Chilisaurus probably ain't no theropod it's a theropod like ornithischian and they published it as an early diverging ornithischian which is within the context of the ornithoskeleda argument is nice because it's an animal that seems to kind of scare quotes here seems to sort of bridge the gap between theropods and ornithischians okay so that's a recent publication on chilisaurus but Mm. what's just happened here in 2018 is um 
uh, Rodrigo Tempmüller and a team of co-authors, they published a paper in Biology Letters, comment on a dinosaur missing link, Chilisaurus, and the early evolution of Ornithischian dinosaurs. So it's a response to that paper by Baron saying that, Baron Natal saying that um, Chilisaurus is an Ornithischian. And they say, well, we ran your data set <laughs> and we didn't find Chilisaurus to be an Ornithischian at all. We found, according to your data set and your codings, we found Chilisaurus to be a sauropodomorph. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so Chilisaurus has been a theropod, then it's an Ornithischian. Now they're saying it's a sauropodomorph. So it's like, Chilisaurus, what are you really? Um, then there's a, a follow-up article to that one by Muller et al. saying, could it be a, a sauropodomorph? And it's by Matt Barron and Paul Barrett. And their paper is titled Support for the Placement of Chilisaurus Within Orthischia. And I have to say, this is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> because, listen to this. Uh, in our recent study, we recovered the late Jurassic dinosaur Chilisaurus. Uh, I'm not going to mangle the species name because I'll mangle it. Mangle, mangle bad. Within the Cladronithischia. This result contrasted with those presented in the original study on Chilisaurus by Novus et al in which this enigmatic taxon was recovered as a tetanur and theropod. Following the publication of our study, the original data set that we supplied was reanalyzed by Müller et al. To our surprise, Müller et al. found that these data, when analyzed using a range of different search methods, placed Chilisaurus within Sauropodomorpha. However, after carefully reassessing the data set that we had originally published, uh, so originally supplied in the data supplement, we realised that we had in fact provided the wrong data set, <laughs> i.e. not the data set that we had used to produce the results in our own study. <laughs> this incorrect data set uh, contained a number of errors in the character coding for certain taxa, and we now realise that this is the cause of the discrepancies between these studies. Upon realising our error, we contacted the editors of Volgy Letters in order to have the obsolete data set removed and replaced in the data supplement file and have other researchers made aware of the errors in the data. The original incorrect data set has now been removed and replaced with that which we used to generate our results. I have to say, I know Matt Barron and, and Paul Barrett, so I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but that is a little bit embarrassing. They published the wrong data set. It's also embarrassing that a set of other authors used the wrong data set and got a paper out of it. Because, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but my thinking on this is that if you run someone else's data and you get results that are contrary to what they published, your first step is to contact the authors and say, why are we getting results completely different for you? Not to rush out a paper and say, ooh-ha, we're cleverer than you, you missed this. Yeah. Huh? Or am I wrong there? Well, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, think, I think they should have contacted the authors. Yeah. Yeah. Just smacks... Smacks yeah, the but it makes a good one. story. It doesn't make a good. Yeah, it makes things more interesting. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, Chilisaurus. Um. So it jumps around a bit, and it, it's interesting that some errors in a data set can make it jump like that, right? Yeah. 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 So clearly, yeah. it's pretty close to being any of these things. Um, well. That's what these studies make it look like. They make it they make it appear that it's close enough to the origination points of these clades yeah. for it to swap branches, which is exactly what you'd expect if an animal really is yeah. of that grade of evolution. But um But I guess what we should say is it's a little bit surprising because it's quite late for that. It's late Jurassic. So we're talking about exactly. 
what um, fifty million years of yeah. independent evolution here. Yeah. I suspect uh, there's some kind of, um, is it fifty million years, something like that. How long is a Jurassic? Uh-oh. Uh oh, it's, it's something like that. Um, so no, it's longer than that, isn't it? Um, yeah. From the well, the uh, so Jurassic, Jurassic, Jurassic two hundred forty-five. Yeah, so mid mid Jurassic is like it's going to be like a hundred eighty-ish million years old. So, but this is this is uh, Chilosaurus's late Jurassic. Is it? I yes. thought it was middle Jurassic. Yeah, it's oh, okay, late, right, Jurassic, late Jurassic. So it's well mm. late. So if you consider mm. the origin of the split between. Um, you know, sauropodomorphs and ornithischians and theropods happening around about in the, what, the middle Triassic? Is that when people think it probably happened? About 240 million years old, 235. So it's 100 million years this thing hung on, looking yeah. pretty much like the split. <clears throat> now, yeah. maybe, maybe, but there's also a possibility that it's one of these other things and there's actually a bit derived and has converged on this look. A bit that like... My- People talking about therizinosaurs in the 80s, you see, you know, Greg Paul and others speculating that they're some sort of um, sauropod um, ornithischian and derived from that split. Mm. It's all convergent, as far as I understand now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't surprise me if Chilosaurus is in a similar position. That is my, my gut feeling is that there's just been some mistakes in interpretation and they haven't. I mean, yeah, there's, we do know of organisms that where, uh, and again, we covered this recently, where some aspects of the anatomy, and remember that, to repeat myself, the skeleton is part of the anatomy. It's not the whole thing. It's not all the anatomy. It's like some aspects of anatomy evolve much slower than other parts, mm. or can hopelessly mislead you as goes convergence in the wrong signal and I, and I think that's the case here i think um chilisaurus likely is a deep, is deeply nested within one of those lineages probably theropods and that uh, it just has got aspects of its anatomy that make it look like an ornithischian or even like a generic early sauropodomorph because that's the thing it looks like it could be any one of those things um, yeah, there's a there's a phenomenon called a wholesale taxic atavism which is where uh, based on the genetic signal, we think that organisms are closely related. But um, the uh, everyone knows what an atavism is, right? It's the apparent recapturing of an earlier condition in evolutionary history. And there can be enough reversals and weird things happening in the uh, development of an organism that it's so much of its anatomy, its whole anatomy can make it look like it's not, not just like a human regrowing a tail but a human regrowing imagine a human regrowing a tail and a big pronator snout and a full coloring a full body pelt you know imagine yeah. like 100 of those transformations happening at once um that is as un, might seem unlikely in evolution but there's no theoretical reason why it can't happen and there are taxa where that is thought to have happened this this whole debate about where gharials fit within crocodilian evolution one of the solutions to this is to say that the they have undergone wholesale taxic atavism and the entire animal looks like it's some sort of like yeah yeah early grade crocodilian rather than deeply nested within specifically the crocodile lineage so yeah um, yeah i think we've discussed this before as well like how do you balance its um 
the time it was found, you know, its stratigraphic attributes with its anatomical ones. Because in our head, we will say, well, this is way late for this, so maybe not. But cladistics has nothing necessarily built in that weighs that. And there's no clear, you know, how do you measure those two things against each other? I don't know how much they're worth, which is why we don't know either. When we think about it, we're like, mm, it seems like it's a count against it, but how much of a count against mm. it? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, more fossils, obviously. Because if you find something that's intermediate between chili so if you if you find a whole lineage of going back to the Triassic, then hmm, well, yeah, maybe. But yeah, got to find some earlier ones, right? And they've got to look not more like something else. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you find one right. that looks a lot, it looks earlier that looks more like a theropod. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, who knows what the ancestral condition was like for that kind of animal. But, uh... Well, that's right. We just need more fossils. I think <clears> this <throat> is solvable just with the fossils we've got. All right. Cash for questions? Yep. Cash yep. for questions. We're Cash trying. for questions, which will soon come to an end. It will. Okay. Take so... them out the back. Shot in the head. Old yellow. <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thanks for that image, Darren. <laughs> Not my joke. Okay. So, this question's from Ivan K. You've been putting hours and hours of research into this one, I know. Yeah. Hell Creek had a diverse array of squamates, turtles, and crocodilomorphs, but what little information I can find on the climate suggests an annual temperature, average temperature of around 10 to 11 degrees centigrade. Was the squamates, crocs, and turtles much more cold tolerant than most modern species as well were? Was the Hell Creek depositional environment warmer than people say? Am I missing something? Thanks, Ivan. Yeah, thanks for the question, Ivan. Ivan is a Tetsucon champion. He, you know, he came second or third or something in the, the quiz uh, 2017. We'll talk about Tetsucon 2018 fairly soon, I guess. But um, so uh, uh, where to start on this? I like to start with the fact that there's a popular misconception, which has been around for you know decades, that the entirety of the Mesozoic world, um, that throughout the Mesozoic history, Earth was a global hothouse. Earth was in a, it was in a greenhouse phase. We talk about the Earth being in either a greenhouse phase or an icehouse phase, and the Mesozoic world was a greenhouse world. But it doesn't mean that it was permanently like 35 degrees C across the whole world at all times. There's loads of variation. There's, uh, particularly as you get into the late Cretaceous, there's, you know, cooling at the poles and cool, cool continental interiors. And it turns out that um, um, there's, I should say, just, just to uh just to flesh things out a bit, there's also claims of like cooler conditions uh, during times of the, the Jurassic as well. But let's just stick to the late Cretaceous here. There's um, data from oxygen isotopes and leaf shapes and sizes and various other ways in which you can analyze temperature uh, inferences of like uh, how much ice there was and stuff that during parts of the late Cretaceous, some places were relatively cool. So Western North America in the Maastrichtian it doesn't seem to have been super hot. Now, this uh, 10 to 11 degrees C 
as a British person, I haven't got a clue what Fahrenheit is. No, so we're not going to just if you're if you're American, which is it, is the United States the only country that deals with Fahrenheit? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What what's wrong with you, United States of America? What is the what is your problem? Inches, pounds, Fahrenheit. I mean, what Donald Trump? Jesus Christ! Saw yourself out. Miles. Um, oh wait. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not so bad. <laughs> no, well, yeah, but but we youngins, we we mostly talk in kilometers these days, anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I'll just go up a kilometer up the road and run at fifty kilometers an hour. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I know how fast I run in kilometers an hour. Not three. <laughs> Um, it wasn't 10 degree t- 10 to 11 degrees C is too cool. The actual annual average for the Hell Creek environment was more like 14 degrees C, which is still surprisingly not hot. <laughs> it's not, um, you know, that's uh, so average. What's the average global temperature today? Is it uh, 10 degrees? For, uh, it's 14 degrees, 14 degrees C. So that's. Uh, in keeping with the average um, yeah, global temperature of the planet today, places like southern England's average annual temperature is around about 10 degrees C. But Hell Creek style, 14 degrees C, that's more like, uh, we said southern France, right? Sort of yeah. Mediterranean. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ivan's question is specifically, what does this mean for ectotherms like uh, squamates, turtles and crocs? I don't see this as a problem at all for year-round persistence and high diversity of numerous small cold-blooded animals. I mean, if you think of like, uh, you know, reptile diversity in the Mediterranean region, places like southern France, there's loads of little lizards. There's no reason why you couldn't have, you know, it's probably, it's a quirk, and not probably, it is a quirk of biogeography and history that there aren't animals like small monitor lizards and crocodilians and large turtles in places like southern france because we know they were historically um in cases they uh, have been extirpated by you know uh human hunting or <clears throat> they've just never so for example yeah. again this go off a tangent uh, crocodilians have gotten into the med- gotten they've gotten <laughs> It's a reference to a previous episode for those of you who didn't get it. Um, crocodilians have gotten into the Mediterranean on many occasions. And imagine a world that's free of all the human stuff. Then there's no reason why. I'm talking about the Nile crocodile. Yeah. And the other one, the other that other small Nile, the animal that always was included in the Nile crocodile, Crocodilus sucus, the one that's in North Africa. It's like in a, in a perfect world they could well have colonized all the shores of the Mediterranean. And we've actually got reason from fossils to think that that there were crocodiles living in southern France. And there's historical references to what were probably crocodiles in southern France. And and there were big tortoises and stuff. So I'm fixating too much on southern France here. But I'm just saying that, yeah, in a world without, you know, the Mediterranean is like full of shipping and there's marinas everywhere and there's people everywhere. But if that was, and of course, people have been using the area for thousands and thousands of years and causing loads of extinction stuff. If that wasn't the case, I'm pretty sure you'd have a southern France that's like, you know, there's crocodilians there, there's turtles there. We probably shouldn't have used southern France as an example because a, somewhere in Australia would probably be a better example. 
Okay. So there's a uh, yeah. So I think the point is there's a whole bunch of places you can 14. stay in the modern world yeah. where 14 degrees C. You have a high diversity. So I kind of think that. Uh, so no, Ivan, you're not missing something. Um, you you're just looking at a um a a climate uh, a suggested annual temperature that seems to be too low as goes the other stuff that we've read and there's there are a few papers out there on this which uh, it would just take it would just be too much trouble to point to those papers now but they're, they're definitely out there <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to find stuff on this but uh, the first thing i checked was saurian the saurian website saurian's a game for those of you who don't know where you live as a dinosaur in hell creek and i know that they looked into it a lot and i also looked into it a lot for dinosaurs in the wild mm-hmm. um and have a, a whole bunch of uh, f- uh papers on climate and environment and stuff in the hell creek region in the maastrichtian late maastrichtian right so answered you know four degrees makes a big difference okay yeah. or three or four degrees yeah um all right, this is from Richard Hing. I'm wondering about white eyes in bracket zosterops. Is there anything interesting to say about their ecological diversity? Loads of species, but all seemingly pretty much do the same thing. Welcome to birds. Birds and specifically passerines, silvioid passerines. So thanks for the question, Richard. Is there anything interesting about their ecological diversity? Well, not really, no. So for those of you who don't know... Zosterops is famously known as a, what's called a great speciator, as described in works by uh, um, well, Ernst Meyer, uh, most uh, famously. Um, Zosterops is, is widespread throughout the Old World and Australasian uh, and Pacific tropics. So they're throughout Africa and, you know, the Asian tropics and the Australasian tropics. There's something like 140 species of Zostrops. Um, and, the, and they're on numerous islands as well. They are uh, s- circa 15 centimetre long, mostly greenish, slim-billed silvioid passerines, uh, obviously so named because of the, the white uh, skin um, ring that they typically have encircling the eye. They don't all have this actually, but nearly all of them do. Did I say there's over 140 species? I think yeah. it's something, something like that. And they are now thought on the basis of like DNA to be uh, sylvioids, this group of like warbler style uh, passerines that the core members of which are the sylviid uh, warblers. That's like, you know, Dartford warbler and um, Sardinia warbler, etc. large number of species. But this is the group that also includes um, uh, babblers and sisticolas and locustella warblers and reed warblers. And white eyes do specifically seem to be close to babblers. And uh, Zosterops history, they seem to have repeatedly colonised um similar or the same areas in different waves with there being very little differentiation between species and as a consequence they are a nightmare as goes identifying them and sorting out their history there are distinct east indian african and australasian and pacific clades and different members of the different clades have colonized like like i say colonize these regions again and again and again over the over the past you know like 15 million years it's it's a nightmare it's a real mess and um they're one of those groups of birds that that you know people kind of love to hate 
and and you can't know so richard's richard's question is there anything to say about ecological diversity having read a bit about it no there isn't (laughs) there really isn't they're all doing the same sort of thing which i think shows and you could say the same for you know many other groups of similar passerines similar small birds it shows that imagine a forest full of trees that have got little insects in them you can come into that forest and be a you know a white eye, and there's already other white eyes there, but, but that's okay. You can just be a white eye as well, and you can be like a you know warbler of another lineage, and you can move in. Yeah, there's room for you as well, so long as you're you know feeding on a different part of the branch. There's enough branches to go around. There's enough bugs to go around. Yeah, for the time being, of course, the the world is not looking good as goes the availability of insects for the future. That's another story, but. Uh, I would say the more interesting story is that it now appears, and again, this has happened only in the past, you know, like 20 years due to increased molecular analysis of passerines, that lots of birds that previously were either thought to be allied to white eyes have been moved away elsewhere, or birds that weren't thought to be white eyes have turned out to be white eyes. And they, uh, they chuck in a whole, like, load of new diversity. So... If I had this discussion like two years ago, I would have mentioned Madanga, which is uh, uh, an Indonesian uh, uh, white eye, which looks rather odd for a white eye because, as I said, white eyes are all mostly greenish. Uh, Madanga has got like an orange chest and it's mostly grey. It's got green wings. Well, some podcasts ago, we spoke about this study where – uh, a team of authors, Allstromatel, I think, they found Madanga uh, and uh, an- another uh, another passerine that I won't start talking about. Um, they found these two birds to not be white eyes at all. Madanga is a pipit. Mm. It says, oh my God, Madanga is taken away from the white eyes. That was a real shocker. But it's like not that much of a shocker because it doesn't look like a white eye in the first place but a load of other things there's um apolopteron which is a japanese passerine formerly regarded as a honey eater that's turned out to be a um uh, a white eye not nested within zostrops but nested within zosteropidae the, the family that includes zostrops and Apolopteron is again unusual compared to white eyes because although it's mostly greenish, it's got a black face and like a black chest. The Yahinas, this is a group of passerines. They've been thought for a long time to be babblers of some kind, so they're somewhere within that sylvioid passerine complex. They are zostropids, so technically they're white eyes, even they don't have <laughs> white eyes. Uh, Yahinas are small. Uh, babbler type passerines with like a long kind of uh, a tall feathery uh, crest um dasicratefa the um the flame templed babbler and its kin of the of the the philippines they also are now white eyes and as you might guess by the name flame templed babbler they don't look like white eyes at all they've got like a tuft of like you know bright orange feathers on the temple and have got spots on the chest and stuff Dasicratefa and and there's a bunch of others as well, a bunch of other birds that you know, were regarded as babblers now appear to be zostropids, so they now appear to be aberrant close kin of zostrops right eyes. So to reframe the question slightly, there is ecologically ecological diversity in the clade. We just didn't recognise it because they start looking different. As and so 
the question, I guess, is why the crazy amount of speciation in something which basically is the same thing, right? Mm. Uh, the answer is kind of just birds. Why, why do they do anything <laughs> like that? But they seem to do it over and over again. It's because, so, there is ecological diversity, but they don't look like white eyes, so we don't call them white eyes, right? That's right. Um, uh, so, how do they decide, uh, how do we know what what... What is the criteria for deciding that all these things which look the same and do the same stuff are the same are different species? Are they reproductively isolated? How do we know that from fossils? Um, so what are we using? Yeah. There? yeah, we don't we don't know it. We wouldn't well uh, fossils <laughs> Okay. There are numerous white eye fossils and there are some people who say that they can distinguish them based on tiny differences mm. in like proportional lengths bear in mind most of them are fragmentary fossils anyway yeah. mostly tibiotarsi and tarsometatarsi um but this a, a common problem with fossil birds the differences between alleged species are smaller than the differences present <laughs> within single species sometimes so you have to be very mm, um, I don't want to say sceptical, but there is a substantial uh, boulder made of salt that you have to roll around with you whenever every, every time you talk about this. So, 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 but but I'm going off on a tangent here. Um, there is within the extant um, species, there are numerous tiny differences in morphology. And across the board, you know, everything you can think of, like, you know, the exact patterning of the feathers and the exact body shape. And then also, of course, with living birds, we've got this huge amount of data on song, the sounds they make. So mm. we've got pretty good reason for thinking that if they're using different vocalizations and they're judging who they can mate with on the basis of vocalizations, then we've got units there that we're calling species. Um, and then we've got genetics as well. Which backs all that up? That there are communities of these birds. Um, yes, yeah. but yeah. I just wonder how real the question is, right? So, yeah, there's communities of these birds. Are they reproductively isolated? Are they really reproductively isolated? Because that seems insane. If they're all doing the same thing and look pretty much the same, and they all come from the same thing, but <laughs> birds? Who knows? Maybe they are. Birds are racist, uh, right? Yeah, they, they are. I mean, so this oh, th this common common complaint about you know species needing to be biologically isolated is do you know that for ninety nine point nine percent of the units termed species, nobody's ever studied how reproductively isolated they are. Nor is it easy to do that to actually do a study to see you know how much hybridization is occurring is yeah, really difficult. But that's and I'm even saying. if it, yeah, Even if you establish it, it's like it doesn't stop them. We're not we're not going to go down the species. No, no, no. But that's why I think there's a lot of these questions are like a bit, eh, you know. It, yeah. What are we even talking about with species? Is there even actually any diversity? We know there's different songs yeah. amongst these birds, yeah. right? So is there well, really any diversity there? Should we but, expect to find ecological diversity? That, yeah. Because you're, someone's you're, you're, decided to name 140 different variations <laughs> of something. 
Well, but maybe yeah. they're just being obsessive. <laughs> well, okay. So, uh, and what before? Before you, I knew you were going to say that. So, before you even said that, I was going to say you're just coming at this from the anti-bird point of view. There's too many birds. We need to sink them all into one or two species. Whereas okay, you're not serious. You're not saying that. I'm joking. I'm joking. But it's yeah. like um, the differences between these species. The claim that where you've got a large number of species. Oh, there's just too many. We need to. I hear this all the time. There's too many new Amazonian primates. You need to sink them down. It's like, well, no, because the differences between those units that we're calling species is as the same as or bigger than the differences between other things that we non-controversially regard as species. The bottom line, of course, being that, you know, what is a, spe- what is a species anyway? But um, I think these different white eyes, it's a, it's a group that clearly has done. I'm, what I'm trying to do is try and find a field guide to hand. They're just out of reach. Um, my uh, field guides on obscure, like mostly African and Asian birds, because they're samey enough for you to think, yeah, these are the same kind. You know, these are. OK, here we go. I guess what I'm arguing for, Darren, because I, the biological um, isolation thing comes up a lot, you think I'm arguing that species should be based on that. I'm not. I'm not saying I don't know. it's not great. I don't know what you're arguing. If you use some sort of ecological species concept, right, what role are they doing in the ecosystem? Where do they come from and what are they? then they are all one species. They're all doing the same thing. You say there's no ecological diversity, and they all look pretty much the same. So I'm just, I'm just saying no, that this not... sort of question about how, much, how, much, how many things can you differentiate is, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's telling us. That's not what I said. They're doing things that are broadly similar but they're oh my god why are sorry zostrops must be plate 120 there's enough small differences in what they're doing the the differences in the small differences in what they're doing are consistent enough are, are consistent with what you expect for you know morphologically similar and ecologically similar species mm-hmm. Oh, that's rubbish. So in in India, there's only there's only two in this field guide. That's not right. This is Grimit et al.'s pocket guide to the birds of the Indian subcontinent. They've just been lazy. They just have shown all the white eyes. It's because they're all the same. So this plate showing <laughs> Prinias, scrub warblers and stuff. You've got yeah. two white eyes there, yeah. and they're saying... There, yeah. should be, there should be like a whole plate covered with like 20 of the things. No, because they're all the same thing. <laughs> no, look, that one's... That one's a bit more yellowish mm, than that one. Mm, totally different sort of animal, that is. <laughs> but they could belong to completely different lineages. Yeah, that's the problem with birds, you know. You could end up in the same place feeding completely different things. Yeah, because one of those is a Sri Lankan endemic, and Sri Lanka's got its own, you know, weird history. Of, okay. All right, it's too much time on that question. So, do you think <laughs> Take you got that, <laughs> Okay, right. so this one from May. I would like to hear some discussions of the creatures on the sh- TV show Sanctuary. Well, sadly, I've never once watched the TV show Sanctuary, and I don't know anything about it. What about you? Me? Nope. So, sorry, May, you're out of luck. Right, let's move on <laughs> to Popular Tat. Popular Tat, insert jingle here. Ah, when we reach our Patreon goal. 
Now, um, <laughs> so we've actually managed to see a film. Both of us have seen a film, and we can yeah. discuss it. And that film is... Annihilation. Annihilation. So, do you want to kick us off? Um, yeah. Do How do we do this? Should we do like a brief plot synopsis for spoilers, <laughs> or just launch into oh, yeah, full-fledged... Well, spoilers, obviously. We're going to... Com- talk about this film in its entirety so if you don't want to know what the film is about or how it ends or anything like that you should not listen yeah but you know studies show that people enjoy something more when they know how it's going to end yeah you said that yeah so you may as well just keep listening now (laughs) so yeah what you want to give a quick overview of what the film is about yeah, very quick, very quick. Uh, uh, Natalie Portman uh, plays a biologist who specialises on cancer called Lena. Uh, her partner, um, uh, a man called Kane, played by Oscar Isaac, as in uh, he's in Star Wars films and stuff. Uh, uh, Poe. Um, he go, he goes missing on some mission and she thinks he's dead and she's really unhappy about it but then he turns up in her house and he's fine it's very weird and then he starts feeling a little bit ill and he gets put in an ambulance and uh, then the ambulance on the way to hospital gets uh, they get intercepted by I don't know secret service or something people with guns and they take him away now, most of the story is told in flashback with her describing her adventures with a group of other researching scientists. They're like various psychologists and biologists, geneticists, physicists. Yeah. yeah. And they are sent to this location where an event known as the Shimmer. Uh, where is this? It's somewhere in the United States, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's in um, uh, Louisiana or Florida or something. It's like su- southern. It's yeah. on the Gulf Coast somewhere. Yeah. Southeastish. Gulf of Mexico. Where basically, I yeah, I think I think we saw. I think at the start of the film we saw like an object uh, coming through the atmosphere and crashing on the planet and it's created this kind of peculiar this effect known as the shimmer where there's this weird sort of like oily um wobbly kind of visual field surrounding an area and lena and her team they are led by the lady in charge is called dr ventress with a name like that she's got to be evil um <laughs> they they go through the shimmer and they try and they want to piece together what the hell's going on and it's immediately obvious that there's weird genetic combination things happening in the uh, organisms inside inside the shimmer. So one of the, um, I've forgotten which character it is, one of them, she gets grabbed by an alligator and they have to kill it and it turns out to be a really large albino alligator that's sort of a mishmash of alligator and shark features. It's got like multiple teeth and stuff and immediately you realise, oh, this ain't right. And then they basically see lots of other weird stuff. They see, like, deer that have got flowers for antlers, and they see these, like, human-shaped plant growths, and they say some stupid waffle about hox genes, which is... Wait, 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 we'll get into that later. Yeah. Yeah, This is Um, just a plot summary. (laughs) And then things happen to different uh, uh, to the various of the I think I think it's an all female team so yeah. this this movie might just about pass the Beckdale <laughs> t- test um, as they get deeper and deeper into the uh, the shimmer area because the the actual object that I mentioned that initially came to earth struck a lighthouse as they get close to the lighthouse things get weirder and weirder and they're sort of killed off one by one uh, a couple of them are injured or killed by a bear 
which initially you don't really see exactly what it is. You get the impression it's a bear-type animal. It eats one of the team members. And then later on, they hear this person calling for help, and it turns out the cries for help are coming from inside the bear, which is now a mutated monster bear with like a skull for a face, and it's really gross, and it's, you know, quite a disturbing uh, creature. And... um, uh, eventually, Kane, uh, sorry, Lena, Lena gets to the lighthouse. She's the lone survivor, and there's a there's a camera and a chair. So there's there's a bunch of other stuff I'm not going to talk about because I've got off at tangents. Um, it turns out that the previous a previous team was sent in, and Kane, Lena's partner, was a member of that team. They see video footage of him with other members of his team, uh, and they're they're clearly experiencing the same stuff. They're seeing weird hybrid things including a really gross scene with a person um and kane has filmed an interview uh, he says that he is really really confused he doesn't understand what's going on and um he doesn't even know if he's the real kane or not and he kills himself he has a uh, some sort of grenade uh, like a flare grenade thing that sort mm-hmm. of burns him and he's obliterated so there's just like uh, is it, I can't remember what's left behind, whether there's his skeleton left behind or something. But then the person doing the filming who steps into shot, bear in mind Lena's watching this on the camera, uh, the person who steps into shot is Kane. So we now know that whatever's happening in this inside the Shimmer is also duplicating living things. And so now you're thinking that the Kane that came back to Lena at the start of the film is this copy of Kane. Um and then she does she who so who does she who does she then meet she meets one other she meets a person yeah the psychologist i forgot the name of the was one, it the, Do- the Ven- ventress ventress so she played by jennifer jason lee and do they fight does she kill her i've, I've, I've forgotten because I, I remember what happens with no, the kind of weird she just turns into something else she turns into the weird vortex thing yeah, so there's this weird kind of uh, indescribable blobby creature with a swirling vortex in the middle, and then some, and it somehow incorporates some of Lena's blood, and then there's some genetic-y hocusy-pocusy stuff. Stuff happens, and then a humanoid starts to grow, and and this humanoid, so it's kind of like Natalie Portman kind of shape. But yeah, generic human shape sort of fights with her a bit, overpowers her, and then it sort of mimics her every move. So when she falls to the floor, it falls to the floor, and um, it's kind of weird to work out what's going on. It doesn't is, is it? I don't know what the hell's going on. And then she gives it a grenade and kills it, and so uh, she blows up the lighthouse, and then all the stuff, all these like biological growths. They're obviously by now, obviously. Obviously, you're thinking this is some alien, um, spreading, creeping, fungus-style organism and is mimicking things. That's obviously come to Earth and it's created these weird growths around the lighthouse and in this environment enclosed by the shimmer. That stuff starts to die. There are these weird like crystal trees near the lighthouse and I think they, they fall down yeah. after the explosion. And um, And then we're back to her in, like I say, it's told in flashback. Doesn't it end with her back in the room and they're saying, so what happened? She's like, oh, I don't know. Uh, th- yeah. And then, but then they introduce her to her husband. I've forgotten the name of him in the thing. And Kane. Kane, yeah. 
and they hug, and then they have this weird little shimmer in their eyes. Ah, uh, yes, the shimmer in the eyes. Yes. Um, and that's the film. And that's the end of that chapter. Yeah, that is the end of that chapter. So, what did you think, Darren? Yeah, um, meh is what I thought. Mm. So, I thought, okay, I, I did not dislike it, but I didn't like it. I thought it was okay. And I, like, fair to middling is my general take home on this. So, I would sort of, I thought, nah, it was all right. But, as so... I didn't like the stupid, crass, totally unneeded errors. They kind of bothered me, which we'll maybe mention in a minute. Yeah. Um, I really dislike the thing that put me off immediately is that whole style of um, telling a film back, telling a story backwards. <laughs> it's like, yep. you've got you've got the character, and now you have to retrace. No, don't. I just think that's weak storytelling. That's a that's a because the, the hardest part of a story is working out how you're going to walk into it and get us to the stuff. Whereas if you start with the ending and say, "Well, now let's go six months earlier," I just think I just think that's overplayed and weak. Agreed. And- cheap. Yep. Artistically cheap and overplayed, as you say. Yep. Stop it. And we're done yeah, with that. And- the other thing that automatically made me dislike it, like I say, despite the fact that I'm not, I don't really dislike it, but the thing that, that inclined me to not like it was the um, heavy-handed use of, um, oh my goodness, I've forgotten the name for it. Allegory. Allegory, Allegory yeah. Allegory. So this is a film about a bunch of science type people, some of whom have military training, and they're sent in to investigate what looks like an alien entity that's affecting local organisms and the environment. And they encounter some weird stuff. They see some weird stuff and weird stuff happens. And that's your story. Yeah. But the stuff, uh, and I, is this, is this film based on a book I think I remember hearing that it's based on a story. I'm a Philistine. I don't read fiction, so I don't know. I think know. it is based on a short story, yeah. I definitely got... Okay, and I could be completely wrong here. Sorry if I am. But I totally got the thinking from it that what I've just described should be the project, should, like, you know, novel, researchers... Okay, novel, right. Um, but they've added... It seems to me they've added in stuff like she's a cancer biologist. She's studying cancer and she's looking at little cancer cells doing their cancery thing in Petri dishes, whatever. And and someone, some, someone, her husband is dying of cancer. So the whole feel of like this corrupting mutation and this death and replacement of things felt to me like they're trying too hard to say, well, oh, ah, but did it even happen? Are you sure it just wasn't in her mind? And she's just living, this is just a visualization of the pain she's suffering due to her experience with cancer. And of course, we've already very heavy handedly set up the fact that she's a cancer biologist and she's looking at cancerous cells. I could be completely wrong on that, but it felt to me like it was real, you know. uh, Yeah, I agree. In general, I found the film incredibly heavy, right? It was just clonking you over the head with its mood, 
and it's little metaphors and it's allegories all the time. And it's just like, this is too much. Just tell us a story that makes sense, which of course they didn't. So mm. I really, really, really wanted to like this film. And yeah, I think too. I should <laughs> say there are things in it which I think are worth mentioning that are like, okay, you know, in terms of modern filmmaking, making a kind of a mashup, um, kind of sci-fi horror film that also is meant is has many scenes which are strange and beautiful in it, right? Like the, the the world they're in is not just an ugly horror world. It's it's very attractive in many ways. It's it's got you know its own weird, strange, beautiful bits, and they put lots of little details in there which. I liked, so I think actually a lot of the um, artistic direction it went in in that way, in its visuals and it, the way it was presenting a lot of the way this world works, I actually thought was pretty good and a bit refreshing in a in a film of this sort, you know, big budget Hollywood sci-fi. Um, and but the whole script and the mood of it just grated on me entirely the whole way through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they say they've sent teams into this shimmer before and no one's ever come out. Mm. So what do they do? Why, why are they stepping in in just like their little their little army outfits, right? They're not wearing mm. hazmat suits or anything like that. They're just mm. going in bloody To be bare. sacrificed. <laughs> and then do they step in and then step out? Why do they walk all the way in? I, none of this is ever explained. What uh, what previous strategies have you tried? And the whole way I'm thinking, this cannot be the best strategy to deal with this thing, to get information out. What happens if you put a thing on a piece of string and pull it back out? Like, literally, I wanted to know these things and not knowing these things the whole time just made me think, this is dumb. They haven't thought about it. There's no answer. The whole thing's dumb. Also, why approach it from... So they need to get to the lighthouse to find the origin of it, right? And then, mm. and their solution is to trek through the jungle. It's a lighthouse. Mm. It's on the ocean. How about you get a speedboat? <laughs> like, okay, just give me something here. So they just did not care about the plot, right? It was all about yeah. mood, and unfortunately, the mood was dreary. There wasn't any. It was. It reminded me of um, Arrival, and in fact, I think it took many of its cues from Arrival. Mm-hmm. Uh, non-linear linear storytelling, the like from one person perspective, the and the mood of it, and I hated Arrival for that stupid mood. It's like yeah, some teenager is making these things, <laughs> and this one was the same. What? Don't make me sit through this. This is just dreary. And to make a film with lots of interesting ideas like this and visuals so dreary was criminal so yeah i i i wanted to like it there were bits of it which i thought were uh brave and interesting um you know in some ways it could have been it seemed a bit like it was taking a leaf out of what's the what's the what's the one on the alien planet um the one the, on the alien planet yeah with the unobtainium avatar avatar right some of the inventing the world sort of thing felt avatarish. Oh, yeah. It was deliberately okay. meant to be nice and it was deliberately meant to be beautiful. And I do like that they try that rather than just going down the horror route because this had, this did have horror mixed in, but that's okay. Um, 
to see films trying that is nice. But mm. oh god, please write them better, please. Yeah, and, mm. I, I liked. Sorry, go on. And yeah, I just think it wasn't really a sci-fi film, was it? It had it had a sci-fi motif. It but unfortunately, it yeah, I thought it was a sci-fi film, but it was sort of like a what's the word? A surrealist drama with a sci-fi motif on it. And unfortunately, I yeah. don't think it was a good surrealist drama. Yeah, and and why why is it that when they actually have sciencey things that need to be said, why do they not? Why do they care? Not the characters in the film, I mean the writers and such. Why do they so obviously not care about getting it right that they've done this thing where they just have? It's like the beeping in the back noise, the background of Star Trek. It's like you want to have these little sounds in there. So <laughs> say say hybridization, say Hox gene, yeah. but say it in completely the wrong context. <laughs> Or say it in a way that's completely wrong. And and those things are oh, come on. Again, is one of those things where if you say this stuff, people criticize you for, you know, wanting the whole world to be a documentary. It's like you can't tell me that there aren't non professional sciencey people that are bothered by something like some stupid thing that a character says about hybridization. Um so so you had you had a couple of things. You had as soon as they saw um the their first encounter with a weird organism which was the the alligator shark thing. Uh Lena said something about crossbreeding doesn't happen between different species or something stupid like that. And again, you don't have to be a professional biologist to think Duh. I'm pretty sure I've heard of hybrids occurring in the natural world. It's like you wouldn't even say that. How you can say some other thing that's at the same level, but and and the thing where she's analyzing they're analyzing human shaped plants. <laughs> The idea that the idea that you would have the plants grow into a human shape is, I, I, I struggling to understand how you know, how that exactly how that's explained. But um, but uh, a character said they've got Hox genes which are unique to humans or something stupid like that. Um, for those who don't know, Hox genes are ubiquitous in all animals. I, I, the plants have Hox genes. Hox genes are to do with the literal the literal organisation of things from you know. The, the way an organism is arranged from from the front end to the back end but um i'm just going to check this book evolution in minutes available at 9.99 in all good bookshops because that talks about because I've, I've forgotten about the deal with plants i think plants have things that do the same role as as hox genes hox genes are a specific set of homeobox genes that control the development and identity of structures along an organism's body axis uh it's, it's, yes it's only talks about animals so they're, they're present in all animals as far as we know okay there we go um yeah that that bothered me and i think you just don't have to do that so you you you, you could easily get it right why do they not care why do they just not care yeah i find this bothersome as well like not sorry yeah that's obviously bothersome if you know but i also find it bothersome that they don't care because mm. surely a significant o- amount of your audience for a sci-fi film is going to know about a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. Just yeah. reading popular science stuff, you're going to know, oh, God, that doesn't sound right. And some point where the physicist says it's about refraction and you're getting refraction in genes. That makes literal no, literally no sense. Um, you refracted DNA or something, something as well. Something like this. Like, no, yeah. you can't just take a scientific term in a completely different branch of science and assume you can apply it to dna <clears throat> and that's just gonna work no and yeah this this really this is really super irritating and i don't know whether they understand how much it takes out someone that knows what 
the talk knows that it's wrong. It rips mm. you out of the drama. Yeah. And this is one place where, in one film, where they could have just gone, you know, scientists baffled. They could have <laughs> just had everything, every time they looked at something, they're like, oh, I don't really understand what's going on. I yeah, don't understand. I, don't... I, I just yeah. don't understand. And I think they could have just done that. It might have been more interesting that way. Um, yeah. So, bad sci-fi writing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I I think also what what kind of meant that I didn't like it that much is it did feel a bit tropey to me as well. There's a there was a series probably going as going way back like late nineties called Invasion, and I gave up on it like I don't know second season because it just didn't seem to be going anywhere. It's one of these things that's concentrating more on human drama than the actual the sci-fi element of it, of course. But um, it was about the idea that there's possibly organisms, including people, being replaced by alien copies, and the growth of the alien organism, whatever it is, is this kind of it. it, it you have you have this phase where these like kind of finger-like um, sort of branching growth type type things that happen and it feels very much like um those you know those that those fungi that infect insects and then the you know it's an ant yeah. is carrying the fungal spore and it goes to the top of a tree and dies in pain biting onto a leaf and then the fungus sprouts out of its head it felt very like that and in watching Annihilation, I felt the same thing as well. You're going with that same trope as Invasion, this kind of fungal, creeping, finger-like thing that after a person has died, you're sort of surrounded. You know, we did see that after, you know, where someone had died, they were surrounded by what looked like blooms of, I don't know, spores or, you know, mold-like growths or whatever, which... which it, it doesn't. It didn't feel. To, you know. Uh, it's, I feel bad for saying this, but it's that's not a thing we haven't thought about or seen before in sci-fi. It's it's like kind of a you know a, a familiar idea to, to to tap into that, which uh, also left me feeling like I say like a bit. Yeah, it's okay, but but meh. Well, I did like man, man bear pig. Though. I thought the uh, man bear pig monster was uh, <laughs> the, the bear the bear creature. I thought was 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 quite cool. And if the whole movie was just that, it was just like monsters <laughs> well, with human voice inside them. Again, the fungal thing, yeah. It, but if it was written well, like it was, like the sci-fi element was written well, then fine. You know, you can do an idea that's been done before. That's okay. I mean, it's difficult to think of completely original ideas in sci-fi. But it would have, it, yeah, it needed to be done well. You can't do an idea that's already been done worse and expect people to like it. For your ideas, right? And I just think that in many ways this did a lot of. It was quite. It felt to me like it did. It did have a bit of a mashup of a lot of things in it. Um, but me being me, I'm not really watching for references like you are, and I wasn't as good at picking them. I'm not very good at picking them out. But bits of it seemed like the thing, to me. Mm-hmm. It seemed thingish bits in it, alien. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely, sort of the sci-fi horror stuff from the. 80s felt like there was stuff in there so i think yeah. they tried to tap into that i have to say the very the very plasticky looking fake flowers as well were another uh uh thing yeah, take- but they could have uh, yeah but they could have been literal plastic so you know you never know they were trying to were fake flowers weren't they okay problem solved yeah yeah so uh star wise what do you give it what are we giving it out of what out of 10 10, 10. 
So a solid five. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, I think I'm going to go with a five as well. I'm really conflicted about it because I just don't think it's a good film. But there were elements that I would like them to try again, just write better. Mm. You can make films with sort of in these broad brush strokes, but please write them better. Mm. Not, yeah, not, not just the sci-fi, but also the drama, which felt crap as well. I didn't yeah. think that the drama worked either. So It, it was, uh, without copying what you said earlier about um, it being heavy, it did feel very melancholy. There's no laughs in it. <laughs> There's no... Um, and and to people who say, come on, you can't expect a slip in a joke. It's like, yeah, but if people are in a situation, you can't tell me that you're constantly spending all your time really unhappy and really moody. And, and that, that they, it felt like that through the whole film. It was all moody and the dark. The opposite was... is true. I mean, look at what, look at people under severe stress, uh, especially in wars, right? Are they not making jokes? Are they always miserable? Uh, no. I mean, sure, it's black humour a lot of the time, but there's lots of jokes, right? People tend to react to stressful situations with humour a lot of the time. And these yes. films, they do not do that, and it's so, well, annoying. Yeah, was there some of that in the film? We've just missed it because there were some bits where the characters, when they were, you know, camping and stuff, they they were they were what were they talking about? They were talking about stuff, weren't they? <laughs> Definitely yeah, talking about well, some none stuff. Of it, but... None of it was. Um... It was unforgettable. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're, I mean, plus, okay. So I, I think fair representation. Gender-wise, so you know that's a that's a plus point, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 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 use the apparent use of allegory. I I honestly wish that wish that wasn't in the film. The the crap, um, sciencey sounding speak algorithm was. <laughs> see what I did there? Yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was bad. And yeah, like I say, a solid meh. <laughs> just, so I sent I sent some fairly negative tweets out because it because I was surprised to see it on um, Netflix. Just showed up there. It's like wow, this yeah. film wasn't out very long ago. I thought I'd have to pay to see it. Um, and uh, yeah, and it turned out quite a few other people shared the same feelings uh, as well. You and I have just discussed. Other people said quite opposite and said, "Oh, it's a brilliant piece of sci-fi and yada yada yada." You got to you got to ignore their their mangling of um, terms to do with crossbreeding and uh, yeah, ignore the sci-fi and... element. And, yeah. But even if I did, I didn't like it. Even if it wasn't sci-fi, it'd just be oh my god, what a dirge. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's enough that. of that. So, so there you go, Annihilation. It was on. It probably still is on Netflix. Um, and. Uh, yeah, check it out if you feel like being vaguely depressed for, what, two hours or so. Yeah, uh, it seems to be doing pretty well on um, uh, internet review sites and stuff, but uh, like that it's matters. It's a financial flop, though, uh, according to the Wikipedia page here, I think. Its budget was 40 to $55 million. At the box office, it made $32 million. They generally want to make more at the box office than they spent on it. Don't they? I mean, I know you make mm. money afterwards, but I don't think it'll make it up. Um. Which is a shame because yeah yeah okay that's you know wasn't sexist can say that but gee did they screw it up in every other way okay 
Where can they? Oh, well, let's talk about the Patreon a little bit. So, we've got mm-hmm. a new uh, Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash tetrapodcats. And um, you can support us there. If you do, we have goals. So, we're really close to recording some special mini episodes for um, Patreon. So, if you're a big fan and you want to get some, like, exclusive extra episodes, they'll be short, though, won't they? Sort of. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, sort of like Come. a cash for question or two um, sort of length. Um, then, yeah. Get on Patreon and support us. We're getting we're really close to that. And then after that, um, our next goal is Darren's farty noises, which he really wants. So if you really want Darren's farty noises in the podcast, there's no farty then... noises. It's it's Dingo and the Baby style. <laughs> I'm sure that's got farty noises in it. Dingo no. and the Baby. Twink wong. <laughs> <laughs> appropriate jingles for the different sections should we keep should we keep the, the 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 podcast with these distinct sections or should we should we change it to i don't know does this work well let's ask our listeners does this well work we did chaos like reigns sep- a few ep- when we, well, probably back around episode 20 no, we did like, yeah, yeah, structureless yeah. episodes yeah, yeah, no, no. What I'm, what I'm referring to is, is do people like that style? You know, because then you end up talking about various things that are unconnected, or do you want a single discussion on a single topic? Because mm-hmm. that, mind you, that that can be bloody boring, can't it? <laughs> I think it probably. I think people, different people want different things, and same people want different things at different times. I think yeah. we should do some single topic episodes. Yeah, but it has to be good topics because yeah. the stuff that I'm really interested in makes a bloody boring one and a half hour conversation. Mm. So, yeah, we'll yeah. have to. And, unless it's something. Because. We did yeah. a big Sorry, episode. So did you... We did? Yeah. It was episode three. Uh, yeah? Yeah. What was oh, that? Okay. Bigfoot. We did a Bigfoot oh, episode. That that's what I'm saying. We did a single topic well, episode. Did you want to say anything else about the Patreon or are we good on the Patreon? Oh, uh, no, I think we're for good. For now, there. so. So, uh, oh, it, it, oh, oh, yeah, just one more thing. Support us or we'll stop doing it. <laughs> Say that, Darren. Say that. We're going to stop. We're going to stop. S- support us or we'll stop doing it. <laughs> so we got, we've got yeah. right now, right, <laughs> just to make people feel guilty, 14 patrons. 14. 14 <laughs> stellar people. Stellar you be people. ashamed of yourselves. And we have 5,000 yeah, listeners. Now, come on. Or 5 million five if million you listen million. to Darren. <laughs> yeah, but I listen to loads of podcasts that don't pay them for it, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, just one dollar a month. No, it's not. It's per episode. Oh yeah, just one dollar per. Yeah, for an hour episode. and a half of quality entertainment. Sometimes two hours of pointless blather. <laughs> okay, where can they find you on Twitter? Um. So just before we do that, I was going to oh. say we were going to talk about the uh, Cloverfield paradox. I don't know whether you, have you, you, I, I don't know whether we're going to do that at some point or not. It could be a waste of time. I hated that film. Well, it's always fun to talk about films we hate, but I haven't seen it. So how about I watch? And we we'll also, uh, given the perennial popularity of Bigfoot and such, we're gonna we should do another Bigfoot episode at one time. But off the back of that 
I, I mentioned this before, didn't I? That Todd Standing movie, which was, which also is just awful. But um, okay, Twitter. Um, I'm at. Whoa! Wait a minute. Let me explain. You are not deviate from your present course. <laughs> oh, they're touchy, aren't they? So you knew this person. Well, that was a long time ago. I'm sure he's forgot about that. <laughs> At Tetsu. That's very good. Thank you very much. And I blog at Tetchboard Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. And uh, those of you who support me on uh, another 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 Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com forward slash Tetsu, one word Tetsu. Um, I'm aiming for a goal there. And those of you who are interested in what I do will know that when I reach that goal, things might be different around here. And John's also on Patreon oh, yeah. and tweets. Yep. Oh, I'm at the John Conway on Twitter. Follow me. Don't follow Darren. He's got enough followers and I don't. So, yeah, follow me. Patreon, Patreon forward slash the John... No, 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 Patreon forward slash John Conway. And I've got a website, johnconway.co. Um, I think that's the it. The sound's really bad. Yeah, the sound's really bad at this end. I don't know how much of that is going to transfer to the recording. Okay. We're having lots of internet problems at the moment. I, I, I don't know what to do about it. Well, I'll record so. it separately if I... Or I'll just leave it out. I don't. It know. sounds terrible. This end, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We're done. Stop there then. Okay. All right. Until next time. Bye then. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>